Luke and praise team. I love going through that passage in John. So wonderful to hear this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 50 to 58. It's the very end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. A few years ago, Andrea and I attended the funeral of a two-year-old baby boy. He was born with a, a heart abnormality, and the doctors knew this before he was born. And as soon as he was born, pretty much, he was in the hospital with having surgery and various other things that was going to address this, this problem. And they knew that in the future there would be more surgeries to come, they would have to, before they could finally fix what was wrong with his heart. When he was about six months old, the temporary fix that the doctors had put in place gave way, and his heart stopped. And his brain was without oxygen for a, an extended period of time, and it was long enough that his brain had permanent damage, but it was not so long as to kill him. So the baby boy went into the cardiac event, a normal, high-functioning baby, and came out in a vegetative state. Now he was too fragile to operate on, and so since the doctors couldn't operate on his heart, as he grew, as his body grew, his heart would fail to support it. So they knew by the time he was about two years old that his heart was going to fail on him. His parents knew this for the entire duration of his life, almost. All they could do is hold their baby boy who couldn't hold them back. We gather together on the Lord today as we do every Sunday. We're here celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we do every single Sunday. In fact, the very reason why we meet on Sunday instead of Saturday is because on the first day of the week, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This day in particular, known to the culture as Easter Sunday and known to the church as Resurrection Sunday, takes some special significance, mainly because we know it was this time of the year on this day, in fact, that Jesus rose from the dead. But it's on this day that you'll hopefully hear in gospel preaching churches around the world, Jesus has made all things new. And we'll sing songs like the songs that we just sang, Up from the grave he arose. How can our minds not occasionally drift to the funeral of a two-year-old baby boy. And maybe for you it's not a funeral, maybe it's something else. But if you live long enough, we can all relate to those seasons in life or those times, those pictures that epitomize tragedy. It's in those scenes that we're left thinking, what was with those Easter shenanigans that we did back in April. 
What was that whole thing about up from the grave he arose? What was that business about? If I'm still here burying my two-year-old baby boy. This morning, we've read the gospel account through John, where Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And now we're going to draw a straight line from that, from Jesus' resurrection, to what it means for us. What does that actually mean to us and for us? We're going to see that in our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58. Read that with me. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And we've jumped right into 1 Corinthians, and we're actually near the end of the letter of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. The city of Corinth is thought of in the first century a lot like we would think of the city of Las Vegas. All right? So it's really a, a sin city. It has a reputation for being sin city. Corinth was a, a port city, which meant that there's a, a thoroughfare, a common thoroughfare, for people of all different cultural and religious backgrounds. And so the problems in the letter that Paul is addressing to the church at Corinth are a result of the Corinthian culture seeping in through the church walls itself. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is addressing really two main arguments about death and what happens after death that are floating around the church at Corinth. And you'll see the first argument, if you look back at verse 12 in this chapter, you'll see the first argument there. It says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is the argument that's going around the church at that time. That there's no resurrection from the dead. And from the beginning of chapter 15 all the way through verse 34, Paul is making the argument that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, how can you say there's no resurrection from the dead if Jesus rose from the dead? In Jesus is proof that the resurrection from the dead is a real thing. That at some point dead bodies will actually get up out of the grave. It's a real thing because when we see Jesus, we see a resurrection from the dead. And how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, he says that there's 500 people that he appeared to. And then he says most of them are still alive to this day. With the clear implication being, you can go talk to them. 
they'll tell you they saw him after he rose from the dead. The second main argument that Paul is dealing with in this chapter is the manner in which a dead body gets up out of the grave. He says that there in verse 35. He poses the question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? See, the Jewish teaching of the day believed that the resurrection of the dead was much more like zombies. The way they went into the, de- into the grave was the way they're going to get up out of the grave. So you can imagine what that would look like. Paul says, no, you're foolish. What is sown is perishable. It's going to decay, it's going to rot, maybe even disintegrate. What is going to rise up will be imperishable. It will be renewed. It will be remade. It will be different entirely. In other words, I'm not talking about zombies getting up from the grave. I'm talking about a different kind of body entirely. That's what's in view. So that's what's been going on in this chapter. And that brings us this morning to where Paul is summing up for us in these nine verses, a really succinct argument that he's made in this chapter. So all of this is based on Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. When we look at Jesus, when we see what's happened to him, we can transfer that to us. That's going to happen to us. So Paul's going to tell us two promises based on Jesus' resurrection. Two promises that we can hold on to. First, what Jesus' resurrection means for us is that we will also be resurrected and transformed. Just as Jesus was resurrected, we will be resurrected and transformed. Look in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So when he says flesh and blood, some people are going to think, well, a body can't then go into the kingdom of God. Like after you die, you won't have a body, right? That, that has to be what that means. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of, of God. That's not what he means here. Instead, think of it like this. If I were to say to you as Christians, we are at war with the flesh. What do I mean when I say that? Well, I mean that we struggle with our sinful nature. We have sinful desires. We have desires that are opposed to God entirely. And then we have a spiritual nature that is is God-given. And these two things, these two natures, are at war with one another. And I'm, I'm very tempted at any moment to follow those sinful desires. We even call them the desires of the flesh. It's a term that we use for our very own sinful nature. This is what he's saying here. Cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Because of my sin, because of the sin of my flesh and blood, my nature is weak. It's corruptible. It's bound to death. That is what's going to happen to it. It has to die. I have lustful desires, I have gossiping desires, I have wrathful desires, I have lazy desires, I have prideful desires, I have all kinds of desires that are every day at war with what God says is righteous. And those of you that know me best are not surprised by that. Those fleshly desires that are a product of my fallen, sinful self have to die. 
My soul is already saved, but my flesh is still sinful. This cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, unfortunately, once I have come to know sin, once I have tasted sin, once I know good and evil, I cannot unknow it. Once I know it, I can't unknow it. You remember the story back in Genesis 2 and 3, where there's one law that's given to the man and the woman? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The implication being because, hey, once you have tasted the will to sin, you can no longer lose your taste for that will, for that desire to sin. Once you know it, in other words, you can't unknow it. So from the day Adam took part in sin until this very day, not only do we know what evil is, but we have desired it. Each and every one of us, whether we're in Christ or out of Christ, all of us have desired the sinful flesh. We have all pursued sinful tendencies. So Paul is saying, here's the problem. And the very reason that there needs to be death and transformation. Our nature, to its very core, has been corrupted. And it has to die. Our sinful nature cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So what does he say is going to happen instead? Look at verse 51. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So first of all, who is in view here in 51? Who is he talking about? We shall not all change, but we, or we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. He's not talking about the babies in the nursery. They too shall not all sleep, but shall be changed. He's not talking about them. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the brothers. Some of you were like way overhead. It's okay. It's okay. You catch up. It's all right. He's look back at verse 50. He's talking about the brothers. He says, here, people that are in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, these are the ones that are in view. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Then he says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. So what's the timing here? When is this going to happen? He says, at the, at the last trumpet, this is the way of saying when Christ returns to the earth, at the end of human history, when Christ returns, all of this is going to take place. And then what does he say? And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So Christians, at the end of human history, when Christ returns, will get up from the grave and the perishable body will put on imperishable, new bodies. That's the change that takes place. This very body that I have at this very moment will be changed. Even if it's dead and long since disintegrated, dead in the bottom of the ocean, the Bible tells us the sea will give up its dead. The grave will no longer hold it. It will come up changed. It will be transformed into what? How will it be changed? It will change into something that will not 
face decay. See, that's the problem that we saw in verse 50. The problem is everything's bent towards corruption. Everything is going to perish. It's in fallenness. It is in decay at this very moment. Our bodies get old. They die. And it's all a result of God's judgment on sin. It's the reason death is there. This is what's going to change. Instead of our body aging and decaying, it will be imperishable. The resurrection of Christ is a pattern for anyone that would follow after Him as His disciple. So after the cross, what happens to Christ? His body clearly goes into the grave and decays. Begins decaying. But His soul goes to be with the Lord. Isn't that what he tells the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. So this tells you what is happening to him at this very moment. But then what happens to his body and soul? Body in the grave, soul with the Lord, the thief in paradise. Three days later, what happens? Reunited body and soul. And there's a physical change that takes place in his body. He can get up and walk, for instance. This is what kind of physical resurrection Paul is talking about here. It's the same thing. It's a straight line from John that we read earlier all the way to 1 Corinthians 15. This is what we too will experience. So our bodies are corrupted by sin. But the body doesn't just get thrown out into the garbage and left to decay, and the soul is set free. That's Eastern mysticism. That's not Christianity. The body, too, gets transformed into an eternal body. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Michael, this sounds a lot like the pumpkins on Cinderella, changed into a stagecoach. This, this, we, don't, we don't live in a Disney kind of world. And I would say, you're wrong. We didn't live in a Disney kind of world until Jesus got up from the dead. At that moment, even the most ardent atheist would tell you, if that is true, if a man 2,000 years ago got up out of the grave and his body was made new, all things changed. Now, anything is possible at this moment. This changes the very structure of the world that we live in. Many things become possible in this world. Church, there's a really important reason that we get this. Because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, we are assured that we who follow Him will also be resurrected. His resurrection sets the pattern for us to follow. So the Lord is going to make all things new. And His kingdom will so fully invade this earth that sin will necessarily be pushed out totally. So this is the case. Uh, there's no room for sinful flesh. There's just no room for sinful flesh. 
if this is true. It must be pushed out as well. It must be transformed into a sinless and eternal body. So the first promise that we have, that we will be resurrected and transformed. But the second promise, death will be defeated. Look with me in verse, verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it's at this point when the resurrection of the dead happens. It's at that point, at the end of human history, when Jesus returns, that death is swallowed up in victory. Not before. It's at that point that death is swallowed up in victory. For now, there's a promise that we're trusting in. We're looking at this resurrection and we're trusting that it will take place. But this is the hope of the gospel. This is the eternal life that we're declaring. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead and conquered death. Not just for Him, but for us as well. Brothers and sisters, if when you die, your body lies in the ground and rots, never to be seen or heard from again, then death has a victory. Death is victorious in that, is it not? But death has no victory. And this is what Paul is saying. When our bodies are raised from the dead, death will be robbed of everything that it thought it could claim. Though it temporarily claimed victory over your body, then it will not be able to claim such a victory. When your body is buried in the ground, it is a picture of the effect of sin. You see that there in verse 56 where Paul says, "...the sting of death is sin." Sin is what is buried that is what has buried that loved one of mine. That is what put them in the ground. That's what put them in the grave. Before the Christian, for those that are in Christ, death has no eternal claim on your body. So there we are, Andrea and I, at this funeral for this two-year-old. And I'm, I'm hurting for this family. And both of us are just a basket of tears. And I'm listening to the person speaking, this sermon that's being preached at the funeral. And I hear him say, he's finally who he was always meant to be. He's finally who he was always meant to be. Now, while it's true that his soul is with the Lord, and we know that this happens in death, right? We've already seen that with the Lord. Your body goes in the ground, your soul goes to be with the Lord. And we also know that that's far better. Paul tells us to be present with the Lord is far better. So we know that that's true. That's not who he was always meant to be. He was created body and soul, and he's meant to be body 
and soul. Sin is what has happened here. Sin is what has separated the two. And it's never more apparent than when you're at a funeral of a two-year-old baby boy. What more of a sting could we witness than that? Friends, you're supposed to grieve and mourn at a funeral. It's sad. You're supposed to feel the sting of death. It's supposed to hurt. I hear Christians from time to time that stifle tears or that suck it up. As if somehow it's more Christian to do that. Or maybe even celebrate the funeral. No. Death is an enemy. In fact, Paul tells us in the very chapter, back in verse 26, death is the last enemy to be defeated. But it's an enemy. Now, we don't grieve as those who have no hope, but we do grieve death. And we, of all people, should know that it's not supposed to be this way. Something has gone terribly wrong here. And everything that's within me knows it. We live under this great cloud of sin. This cloud of darkness that sin has caused. And it would appear as we look around that even though Christ rose from the dead, it seems as though nothing has changed. Doesn't Peter tell us this in 2 Peter chapter 3? Scoffers will say, well, what's changed? So you, you celebrate Jesus got up from the dead, but, but look around you. Things seem to go on as if nothing has changed. You're still going to die at some point. Everything keeps going on as though nothing has changed. And I'll, I'll tell you, at some points in my life, I'm tempted to listen to that scoffer. And I'm tempted to think to myself, well, it is really dark. And there does seem to be times where there's no hope. And man, there's sometimes where I just, I just wish Jesus would come back now and just end this whole thing, right? There's a scene in the book called The Return of the King, which is the last book of the Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien where Frodo and Samwise Gamgee are traveling along the road and they've, they're on this long quest to rid the world of this vile ring. And the closer they get to their end goal, the darker it gets. And there's times along the way where they're tempted to give in to the darkness and they're in despair and they're frustrated and they don't know what to do. Sometimes they even turn on each other. And they're under this great cloud of darkness. And there's this scene at the end of, of the, the last book where Sam is at his lowest point. And he just, it just feels like evil is all around him and that it's inevitable. Evil is going to win here. And it says this. 
Sam struggled with his own weariness, and he took Frodo's hand. And there he sat, silent, till deep night fell. And there, peeping among the cloud rack above the dark tor, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart, and he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. The truth of the gospel says that Jesus has conquered sin and death. Similar to Sam, we're under the cover of gloomy darkness. We're in a wasteland surrounded by caskets and catacombs. But peeking out from behind the cloud of sin and death is the bright light of the resurrected Savior. Testifying to the truth that though the world is dark, there is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. This is what we're celebrating today and every Sunday. So when we look at that casket, it's not knowing that he's in a better place that should give us comfort. It's knowing that one day when Jesus Christ, who has the keys of death and Hades, returns, He's going to call His body up from the grave. That's what should give us hope. It's at that point that death will die permanently. The hope of the gospel is that although right now it looks like death is winning, in the end it will be robbed of all its glory. Yes? Amen? And if I'm in Christ, then I too will put on an immortal body. And as God spoke at the beginning of creation and created the world that we see around us, so He will speak again and call bodies up from the grave. Nothing is beyond his reach. Can you imagine what life would be like, a world without sin? That's what we're talking about here. The curse of sin being completely lifted. A life very much like the life that we live now, yet sin has never touched it. That's the kind of life that we're talking about. A physical embodiment where I can give you a high five. A lot of people think that eternity is just this floaty place that we just go off to and, and I don't know, sing chants or incantations or something for all of eternity. That doesn't sound like a place that anyone wants to be. That's not the place that the Bible depicts. It's a physical embodied state. That's what we're looking at in this passage. A world that sin never touched. That's what's anticipated here. But friend, don't live any longer without Christ. 
some who are without Christ will say that they believe these things. I think these things are true. But you wouldn't know that they believe those things if it wasn't Sunday. Or maybe even if it wasn't a holiday. You would have no idea that they actually believe these things. This isn't following Christ. This isn't real belief in Christ. As James 2.17 says, faith by itself if it doesn't have works, is dead. He's saying that's not saving faith. To just think that this happened, to believe that this happened, but there be no subsequent works that follow, that's not the kind of belief we're talking about. You can't just continue to say, I believe this, and then not take up your cross and follow Christ. If you're going to say, I believe this, then following Christ with your entire life is what is required. That means a lifestyle of denying sinful impulses. That means a lifestyle of confessing sin where you fall because we're all going to fall. It means connecting to, to a local church body. It means a lot of things like that. To do otherwise is to live without Christ. But others will try to do the works while they don't believe in the story of the Bible. And that's not going to work either. That's also living without Christ. Romans 10.10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. Your belief in this story and your confession that Jesus is Lord, that He is King, not just of your life, but King of the entire world, your belief in this is necessary for salvation. Without a heartfelt belief, you're a legalist at best. That you think that your good works can somehow put God in your debt. That He would somehow owe you salvation. And the sad reality is, none of us are good enough. None of us can live up to His standard at all. Every single one of us are going to fall short. So I'm sorry, by now you've already missed it. You can't do it. What we find in the death of Christ is a perfect man who suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. He suffered the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He was punished for our iniquities. But we also find in Christ the promise of life everlasting. For both in His resurrection and ours. So now what do we do? Where do we go from here? Paul actually tells us where we go from here in the last verse. There's two points of application. First, he says, don't move. Look in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. It it means don't be swayed. Don't shift from your position. So Paul uses this same term in 1 Corinthians 1.23 where he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This is what we're supposed to hold on to. This is what we're not supposed to move from. You cannot move from this confession of faith. If we have hope in the resurrection as believers, then we can't shift from that belief in the resurrection. It stands to reason. The world would have us bend, or maybe soften our approach, or change altogether. In some cultures, it's stop preaching or we'll kill you. How can you threaten someone with life that believes their body will be resurrected? 
How can you do that? You can't. Don't move. Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in in hell. Hold fast to your confession. Be steadfast. So first he says, don't move. Second, he says, move. Look at verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So work, go, move, actually do something. The resurrection of the dead should motivate us towards good works. In other words, we of all people should be motivated towards good works. What kind of work does this mean? He says, In Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. This is the kind of work that we're supposed to be doing. Everything. Work that is done with thanksgiving in your heart to God. That's the point here. That could be running a Fortune 500 company, or that could be witnessing in the villages of Tibet. It could be everything from teaching math to changing poopy diapers. It's not the nature of the work. It's the attitude with which you work that matters. This doesn't mean that everyone that wants to serve the Lord and wants to abound in the work of the Lord has to become a full-time missionary. It doesn't even mean you have to be winning all your customers to Christ in order to be a good, upstanding Christian i got a bad conversion rate. That's not what we're looking at. Maybe you find your job unfulfilling. Maybe you find it menial. Maybe you're just tired of what you do. You wouldn't think Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, that Jesus would, or Paul even, would have anything to say about that. But then he comes along and he says, the very fact that we will be resurrected from the dead means that we're to continue doing the work that he has put us here to do. That it's not wasted. That the life you live is not wasted. There's not only permanence to our lives... But there's rewards in the age to come. So whether it's law or real estate, teaching school, whatever you've been given to do, work as though you've been appointed by Christ himself to do that job. Why? Because there is a real, physical, embodied world to come. Isaiah and John call it the new heaven and new earth. And the picture is God lifting the curse of sin. From the world, remaking our bodies into imperishable bodies, establishing his throne on earth physically forever. And Jesus tells us why this should spur us on to good works in Luke 14. He says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid when? At the resurrection of the just. That's why you work, because your repayment comes at the resurrection of the just. So the reason we should work is because it further testifies to the world around us what we believe is to come. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain, because there is a world to come in which you will be rewarded for your work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
to say thank you for the resurrection does it an injustice. But Lord, our hearts are grateful for what you have done. Lord, I pray that the gratitude that we feel inside for your having saved us and forgiven us of our sins and promised us eternal life, I pray that that gratitude would move outward, that it wouldn't just stay harbored up and swallowed, but it would be external to us. Other people would sense the gratitude with which we approach life. That they would see and hear our testimony of what we believe. Lord, I pray that all of this that we've uncovered in 1 Corinthians would be trusted, believed, hoped in. That though we're tempted to follow the way of the world, Though we're tempted to get lost in despair and gloom. Lord, I pray that you would give to us hope. That as we look to this Sunday and see the resurrected Savior. Hear the testimony of the 500 or more witnesses. That heard from him and saw him. That we would take great comfort in that. And that despair would fly away. That we would know that we have a mission here. That you've left us here for. That we would turn, Lord, in worship to you. Because you conquered sin and death. And it's only by your name that we have salvation. Lord, we are grateful. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.